Today, I'm sitting down with one of the great marketing minds of our day, Wharton professor and best-selling author, a guy named Peter Fader. Before we dive into that interview, though, I, I want to ask all of you a favor. If you can believe it, we're coming up to our 100th episode. It's going to be here before we know it. And for an entire episode, uh, I want to hear from you. Visit our website, restaurantstrategypodcast.com. I want you to click the blue button in the upper right corner. That will take you to a page where you're going to be able to record a message right there on your computer. It can be 10 seconds or it can be as long as five minutes. But I want you to tell me one way this show has helped you and your business. I want to know something you learned, some insight, some breakthrough. Tell me a story. I'm telling you, the 100th episode is coming up. And if I can help it, I'm going to shut up for an entire episode. I want to celebrate all of you out there, all the incredible things you're doing, and especially uh, coming out of this year. Uh, I, I can't think of a better way to, uh, to celebrate the 100th episode. So please help me do it. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com or you can click the link. It's right there in the show notes. Go do that now. Then please come back for my interview with the one and only Peter Fader. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. Each week we discuss the tools, tactics, and strategies that will establish you as a leader in your market. I want to help you do more covers and drive more revenue. If you've been with us for a while now, you know that I go back and forth from week to week. Mostly, I do a monologue-style format where I choose a specific topic, and then we pick that topic apart. But then every so often, I'm able to bring on a guest for a longer interview. Today is one of those episodes, and I can't wait to dig into this idea of customer centricity. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. This week's episode is sponsored by the Craver app. Now, you may remember back on episode number 89, I was joined by the company's founder and CEO, Amin Yazdani. We had a great conversation about the Craver app, about technology in general, how it can really, really help independent restaurant owners specifically. Craver is the ultimate solution for mobile ordering, loyalty, and payment for your restaurant. Using Craver, uh, you're going to get your own branded app that isn't just some cookie cutter software. It will be an extension of your brand that's right there in your customer's pockets. You get to own your customer's data. You get to own the process by which they engage with you. And then you get direct access to their orders commission free. Your customers get the convenience of mobile ordering and you get to engage with them directly using push notifications, customized coupons, and promo codes. Use Craver's loyalty and rewards to build stronger relationships with your guests. Uh, these are ways to increase the frequency of visits and to grow check average. The app integrates beautifully with delivery services like Postmates and DoorDash, but you just do a flat fee per delivery, so you can stop paying those crazy commissions that many of those third-party sites are charging. Plus, Craver integrates on the back end with many POS systems and payment providers. To learn more about Craver and how they can help provide you and your customers with a beautiful branded app, I invite you to check out their website, www.craverapp.com. Don't worry, that link is in the show notes. So, Today, I'm joined by Peter Fader. He is a professor in the marketing department at the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, as well as the co-founder of a company called Theta Equity Partners. About a decade ago, he wrote a book called Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage. I am thrilled to have him here to share some of his ideas with all of you. Peter, welcome to the show. Chip, it's great to talk to you. Really looking forward to seeing what we can do. Yeah, I've been a, a big fan of uh, of your work for a while. Uh, I just picked up the new release of the book, uh, which we will talk about. Uh, I guess it just came out in this past year. Uh, but over the course of the next hour, uh, I want to talk about this idea of customer centricity. Um, I want to talk about the work you do, how you've applied it to, uh, to actual businesses. And then I want to be able to drill down to a place where we can apply this idea to restaurants. And, and to give you some context, uh, my audience, the listeners here, uh, pretty much across the board, um, uh, the audience is made up of chefs, 
managers, small business owners who run standalone restaurants. Maybe they have a small group of restaurants, but but we're definitely talking about businesses that are independently owned and operated. Uh, so I know you do a lot of work with big companies handling big data, and I, and I want to talk about the insights uh, that that work has given you, but then I do want to talk about um, how that data um, can be applied to uh, small business owners as well. So I guess the the best place to start, at least for me, uh, is to to start uh, explain if you can uh, the idea of customer centricity um, and and what does it mean to be uh, product centric versus customer centric. So there's, there's there's two separate points you raised there, Chip. So let me address each of them. So for 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 most companies, whether it's a restaurant or a widget manufacturer or a hotel chain. So whatever product or service they're delivering, usually it's all about the product or the service that we, we came up with a great idea. Um, let's bring it to market. Let's have lots of customers who, who enjoy that product. And let's figure out what's the next product to offer. Uh, and then let's build our company around the product. Let's hire people who have expertise in how to refine that product, communicate about it, distribute it. Um, and, and if you look at most org charts that, uh, and even financial statements, they're around the thing it is that we sell. Uh, and that's the way business has always worked. It's very easy for us to measure that thing. You know, how many items are we selling? You know, uh, how many tables are we serving and, and, and so on? Uh, but I contend that we can do even better if we take that whole picture and turn it about 90 degrees and start to focus more on the customers who are buying that product or service. And, and it's a pivot that I went through myself in my academic career. I built a lot of models for new product forecasting until about the turn of the century, For then for various different reasons said, let's focus on the customer and say, how often will they buy from us? Uh, and for how long a period will they even can consider doing so? And how much will they spend when they do? And then use that information about the customers, how they differ from each other, to drive the decisions about what kinds of products or services we should be offering. So it, it sounds kind of similar, but it really is a twist on the usual way of doing business. And I really do believe that by taking the customer-centric perspective, that we can make more money in a defendable, sustainable way, can communicate, can align with, uh, with our internal and external stakeholders, much more effectively than we just obsess over the product per se. Right. So the customers, you know, without the customers, we don't have a business, right? Or at least not a profitable one. We've got one that's going to lose. Um, uh, early in your book, you call customers uh, free agents, which I love. You say uh, their loyalty only extends so far. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, we have this, uh, this, this notion that we either have our customers or not. They're either with us or they're not. And if they are, they're going to go through the gates of hell to stay with us and do whatever it takes. But it's not that simple. There's lots of shades of gray there. Uh, and and th these aren't my words, but, uh, but you got to stop thinking about your customers as being loyal. Uh, and and they're, they're really going to be... Uh, they're going to have multiple relationships. And so the whole, you know, a lot of people will, will make dating analogies or marriage analogies in their customer relationships. That's not the way it works. Their customers are, are dating or perhaps married to multiple different firms, multiple different restaurants. Uh, it only makes sense. So don't take it personally. If you don't have all of their loyalty, it's not your fault. There's probably very little you can do about it. Learn to live with it. But... If we can, but we have two choices. Number one is to look at our customers, most of whom are so-so and are spending a lot of their time dating or, uh, you know, having relationships with uh, other firms. Don't take it personally and, and don't spend too much time trying to change them. Uh, I mean, yeah, try to squeeze a little bit more out of them, but it's actually more effective to find customers who are born to love you. Uh, that if we can find the kinds of customers who are just inclined to stay with us a long time and do more with us and say good things about us, it's a little bit harder to do that, but there's much more upside when you do it very well. Okay, this is great because what's interesting about what you talked about, and you, again, you wrote this book more than a decade ago, um, and since then, um, other people have talked about this same idea. I mean, Kevin Kelly talks about the thousand true fans. 
Um, Seth Godin now you know talks all about um, uh, the smallest viable audience, right? So you're talking about those people who who absolutely adore what you do. You, you sometimes uh, show this uh, this bar chart. Uh, can you explain the bar chart when you look at um, uh, just last week in the uh, the Jernia Summit? Uh, you, you talked about that, and you said we, you know, we run these uh, analyses for all kinds of companies, and the bar chart always looks the same. It looks just like this. Can you can you explain uh, what it was that you you talked about in that that keynote speech that you delivered? Absolutely. So let's work our way to the bar chart. Uh, the main idea is the concept of customer lifetime value. Uh, and once again, when I went through this pivot from instead of focusing on the product and how much of it will we sell over time to the customer. How long will they buy from us and how often and how much will they spend? That's the idea of customer lifetime value. Uh, 20 years ago, it wasn't part of anybody's vocabulary. Today, a lot of people are starting to talk about it. And I wish I could get more in the restaurant space. Even there, I'm starting to hear it, but it's still more exception than rule. So it really is, as, as opposed to what the folks like Seth and Kevin are doing, where it's a little bit more conceptual, it's a little bit more qualitative. What I'm doing is hardcore quantitative, very precise, very mathematical, very rigorous, very accountable. So if you go back to the three questions that I've now mentioned a couple of times, number one, how long will a customer stay with us? And even just contemplate making a purchase. Number two, how many purchases will they make over that horizon? And number three, how much money will we make on each of those purchases? So this is, again, dollars and cents. Um, I, I like to forecast each of those behaviors, and I do it over long horizons, and I do it very, very well with lots of good diagnostics to understand why the trajectory for some customers or companies look different than, than for others. Uh, bring all those things together, and it's going to give us the projected profitability of each and every customer. So just imagine, I'm going to pull out my, my magic CLV wand and wave it over each customer's head, and a number is going to shine, or maybe four numbers are going to shine. How long are they going to stay? What are they going to do? What are they going to spend? And add all that up to say what's their projected profitability into the future. So that's what I'm doing, is I'm coming up with those numbers. And then after I do it for each and every customer, and I look at the distribution of the customers, I say, how many of them are really valuable? How many of them are so-so? Eh, turns out there's some very interesting surprises there. Because all too often, we talk about our customers in some kind of singular average sense, um, and we think about maybe some kind of traditional bell-shaped curve. Oh, you might remember that from some horrible statistics course you took a million years ago. Well, that's not the way it works with your customers. Turns out it's, it's the opposite of that. Turns out that most of your customers are, eh, they buy from you, you know, maybe once a year. And then over there on the right, there's going to be this, this set of customers who are, for whatever reason, is it love, is it loyalty, is it obligation? I don't know. That's not my job. But you get this set of customers who appear to be inclined to stay with you a long time, buy very often, and spend a lot. So it's understanding the differences across the customers, both in a, in a statistical quantitative sense, but then to start to say, what's up with those customers on the right, that big bar on the right? What makes them different in the way that we acquired them, in the way that they use our products and services, in the way that they respond to our communications, in the way they talk to other people? Um, so if we could focus more on those customers and use those to drive all of the business decisions we make, like what should be on the menu? Where should we open up our, our next outlet? Uh, uh, instead of saying, you know, what would be most broadly appealing to the maximum set of customers, that's the big distinction. And that's where this, this bar chart you referred to uh, comes to life. Yeah. So again, I want to just kind of paint that as, as clearly as possible. So if we're laying out all of our customers over a, a given, you know, set of uh, a, a given timeline, right, a year, five years, 10 years, um, you're saying that the majority of them are going to be clustered around the bottom. They, they've only come to you every once in a while. They're only spending a, a finite amount of money. And then it's going to trickle off in the middle. Uh, so kind of the opposite of a, of a you know that normal bell curve, and but then way at the right, you're going to get a you know a bar of people, a chunk of people that spend with you quite a quite a bit. They visit you quite often. They spend a lot of money when they do, um, and that there's value in uh, identifying them. 
so that you can figure out who they are, what they want, uh, and then hopefully, right, how to continue serving them and how to find more people like them. I mean, is that the, the kind of the crux of what you're just saying? Well said, Chip. Well said. And it's uh, and easier said than done. I mean, the quantification to see the size of those bars and so on, that's actually pretty easy. That's the, the, the math, the models that have been developing and commercializing for, for years and years. But then to say, so what makes them different and how can we both leverage their value and find more like them? That's where real judgment and creativity and resourcefulness uh, comes into account because that's not just given to you as, as easily as the bar is. And I do have to say that a lot of companies, again, this is going to be true for restaurants as well as every other kind of enterprise, um, have an idea of who those customers are, and very often they're wrong. Very often they have the a, kind of almost a stereotypical notion of who the best customers are, and they're often in for a, a rude or sometimes pleasant surprise when they actually learn the truth of who's out there. So can you explain that a little bit better? Because um, that, that's that's interesting to me. What, what do you mean by that? So uh, I, I, it's, it's a, a, a chapter I live, relive over and over and over again. So I'll give you a specific example. Work with a, uh, a women's accessory company selling you know purses and, and things like that. And they just know that their, their best customers are millennials. And they're spending all of this time, effort, money trying to appeal to millennials, trying to bring in millennials, spending all this money on Facebook. Hey, Facebook, you know, show our ads to millennials. Um, we put all that aside. We say, just, just let's just look at the data. Let's put aside any of the, the demographics and let's just find out, here we go again, the kinds of customers who are gonna stay with us a long time, buy very often, spend pretty well, and just be more responsive to what we do and say, okay, what do those customers have in common? And very often we find two things. Number one, there's not just kind of a singular profile to them. They are not millennials, they're actually quite diverse. And very often in that chunk, in that diverse chunk, uh, there'll be a bunch of customers who you spent no time thinking about. Like in the case of this, this women's accessory company, a lot of baby boomers, like, whoa, we're not trying to appeal to them. <laughs> Um, so you have to be more open-minded about it. You have to be willing to appeal to lots of different customers who on the surface look very different, but when it comes down to their behavior, might be surprisingly similar. And then once we have that understanding of who those best customers are, then to start to make those, those uh, difficult business decisions about how to make our business more appealing to them and other folks like them. So here's the, you know, the interesting thing about how, um, how restaurants operate is that you know, just like a lot of other business, a lot of other businesses, we, you know, we live and die by, you know, the revenue. And we're always talking about the covers. How many, how many covers are we doing tonight? How many covers are we going to do on Saturday night? How many, you know, how many covers, how many people coming in the door do we have? And, and what is that number against last year's number? And then two years ago and five years ago, so we can, you know, identify trends. And, you know, like you said, there is not one uh, one customer. There is not, you know, one anonymous, ambiguous customer. There are many different customers that there are different people coming into the restaurant for different reasons, for different purposes, uh, at different frequency. Um, so I, I, you know, that's one observation that uh, that I've certainly been guilty of uh, over the years because you do just look at the numbers and you know I get, you know, $85 per head and I know that I need to get X number of heads in the place uh, to make what I need to make to be a, a, a profitable restaurant. But then the other side of it is, is interesting as well because every restaurant certainly knows they're regulars. They know who comes often. They know the big spenders. Uh, they know who um, you know who really uh, makes a difference in their bottom line. And we hold both of those together in like two different hands, um, and we believe them both at the same time. And there's um, uh, there's there's something flawed about that thinking. That's right. So that's what I'm trying to do is to build a bridge. Is to basically take that understanding that not all customers are created equal but to quantify it, to leverage it, to embolden any kind of firm, especially restaurants, to, to kind of go deeper with it, to do more with those customers, to figure out what makes them different. And, you know, let me go back to uh, what you just said in, in, in your comment. You know, it's so common. It's not just restaurants who are looking at, at covers. Uh, I had a great conversation with the chief analytics officer at Electronic Arts, a guy by the name of, of Zachary Anderson, who's now at NatWest Bank uh, over in the UK, and right there it shows that we're talking very broad applicability. Uh, and, and I remember him saying, when we launch a new game, 
usually the way we gauge success is how many copies of the game did we sell? I mean, it's the same thing. But he said, that's flawed thinking. And, you know, what happens if we come up with a game and we sell it to a bunch of people who have never bought from us before and have never bought and will never buy from us again? Same thing with a restaurant. Suppose we, you know, we, we have just a, an incredibly busy weekend, but it's a bunch of people who never knew us and they never come back again. Well, what good does that do us on an ongoing basis? Instead, maybe we actually want to have, believe it or not, you know, fewer tables uh, and maybe even lower spend. But if we knew that these are high value customers who are going to come back again and again and again, and by whatever special meal we just served, it's going to increase their lifetime value. They're going to come back more often than they would have otherwise. That's the way to evaluate either a new game or a new restaurant concept or a promotion is to say, what's the value, the projected future value of the customers who participated in it and how much more value have we added by doing it? If we look at things through that lens, we really will run our business differently and I contend better. And, and here's the here's the cool part about that. And uh, and so much of this podcast, so much of what I try to do is to take um, marketing concepts and uh, make them understandable for people who don't otherwise have a marketing background. Uh, and then more than that is to make them actionable. And here's the really cool part about what you just said is that uh, most other companies in the world, certainly a, a video game uh, producer, uh, doesn't get to talk to each and every one of their customers, certainly not in the way that we get to do. I mean, for most of us who are in restaurants, the transaction is two hours long. We have two hours to number one, make an impression upon uh, our guests and to, uh, you know, and to, and to turn them into regulars, but also to get to know them. There's an opportunity to get to know who they are, you know, what makes them tick, uh, what they, you know, where they live, what they spend, all of that. We, we get to know our customers, um, which is uh, gets right to the heart of what you were saying is about identifying, you know, that that group who's way at the the right side of that of that graph. You know, we get the opportunity to do that. That's right. You know, restaurants have it really good. Now, I know that's a tough thing to say, especially with everything going on with the COVID. But just in terms of the ability to to implement a customer-centric strategy. Um, restaurants have it better than almost any other sector. Uh, so it's number one, as you just said, a real ability to interact with folks, a real ability to customize the experience, to listen to them, to see what works and what doesn't, to really have your finger on the pulse of the customer base. Number two, the data. It's actually very easy. It's been a low priority, but to really tag and track customers, to, to know who's doing what when, you know, who's coming in, how much are they spending, what specifically are they doing with us? And then my part, the analytics, to basically turn that data into these insights to understand the projected value of customers, and then to use that to come up with that kind of customization and personalization that, that comes so easily. So, so all the ingredients are in place. It's just that it's been a very low priority. It just hasn't been on the radar of enough restaurants, but that's changing. And I really have had the pleasure of talking, whether it's to, to restaurants themselves, uh, different chains, different private equity firms, or different uh, companies that are making it possible to get the data. Like just yesterday, I was talking to a company uh, out of the Detroit area called Wisely, uh, and they're doing just a great job of not only helping restaurants to collect that data, but draw the insights and take action from it. Yeah, that's and that's key to it, right? Um, you know, the thing that I'm always saying is, uh, you know, someone's going to fix this, uh, but you know, with restaurants, we've got two main pieces of software that at the front door, we've got the reservation software. So this is where we have people's names and email addresses and phone numbers, and we can tell when they came here, how far in advance they booked, how often they come. Uh, so that's the reservations information. And then on the other side, we've got our POS system, right? And that's where we actually track sales. Um, and, and nary the two shall meet. It's really hard to integrate the two of them and uh, so we can tell, uh, you know, again, how often people come, uh, but we can't often, um, we can look back and say, oh, anecdotally, oh, they're here all the time, but are they really, really spending uh, a lot of money? Maybe there's somebody that comes uh, once a month that spends more money over the course of the year than somebody who comes once a week. 
um, but finding a way to bridge those gaps. And there are restaurant groups uh, who are starting to do that. It takes a little bit of work. It takes certainly a commitment to be able to do that. Um, the old, uh, you know, a lot of the, the fine dining restaurants here in the city, uh, some of the big French restaurants uh, certainly do this. They have a system for identifying, you know, who their most valuable customers are. And they, they were doing this 15, 20 years ago. Um, most famously, they've got the, uh, the ABC 123 uh, system where, you know, ABC refers to how often. So if you get marked as a regular or a VIP, uh, VIP only tells half the story, so we need the letters and the numbers to tell the other piece so that A are the, the people who are here most often of that VIP group, the Bs are less frequent, C is less frequent than that, and so they're in three cups, and then one, two, three is actually attached to the dollar amount. So they run these reports every month, and they jockey positions, and they figure out who are, you know, the A1 VIPs get a table no matter what, day of the week, time, no matter how many people they want to seat, they will get a table. They will bump reservations to get the A1s in there because they know they're here all the time, and they spend a ton of money every single time they're in. And that's kind of like a low-tech version uh, of what you're talking about. It's certainly uh, something actionable that people people can, um, can put into practice pretty quickly. Yeah, and actually, this, uh, here's a, a great lesson to, to share with, with your listeners. Uh, what you just described is two-thirds of the most famous, powerful rubric that our forefathers in direct marketing bestowed upon us about 50 years ago. So way back then, you know, the people who were selling, you know, Ginsu knives and all these late night ads, this and that, they were very, very smart about this because for them, they were the first ones to introduce these ideas of customer centricity. You know, we can sell any anything to anyone. We want to figure out who are the right any ones, and then that's going to tell us what are the right any things. Uh, and so they looked around to try to find metrics that would both characterize and predict the future value of, of customers. And they came up with the rubric of RFM recency, frequency, monetary value. Now, what you've just described, Chip, and again, so many restaurants know, is F and M, frequency and monetary value. But RFM, first of all, brings in this third element, recency, and it has that name, it has that ordering for a particular reason. It turns out, and so much of my work has confirmed this, that recency trumps frequency, which trumps monetary value. So it's more, the most important thing to know is when is the last time they dined with us? Because if you think about it, if you have someone who, who has dined with you very, 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 very often, but they haven't been around for, you know, a year, they're probably gone. So who really cares that they're an, an A-type customer? So RFM is the right way to go. And it turns out that the statistical models that I build and that I've commercialized take those three metrics as inputs to then project the future value of the customer. So it's really important to know the when, not just the how often. You know, the key to all of this, or I guess the, you know, the, the thing that always kind of uh, holds people up is that, uh, especially when we're talking about small businesses and uh, restaurants, running the, you know, the day-to-day -day of a restaurant is hard and it's grueling. They're long hours. And so often we spend so much time, again, it's like the old saying goes, spend so much time working in your business that you don't often have time to work on your business. Uh, that a lot of times when I talk to uh, restaurant owners, they say, I I'd love to do all these things that you're talking about, uh, but I just got to you know, fill in the blank. And it's all about, you know, putting out fires or just making sure that you know, literally that, you know, that things get chopped, that the bread gets baked and, and all of that. Um, and I guess the thing that I want uh, people to come across uh, to come to by the end of this is that this is very much going to impact uh, the bottom line uh, of your restaurant that if you think you don't have time for it, you've got to carve out uh, <laughs> twice as much time for it. So let's talk about it. So look, it's, it's the same problem in every sector that, uh, uh, yeah, it would be nice to do all that long-term stuff, but, you know, we got to meet the quarterly numbers, whether it's it's because of, of, you know, internal conflict between the folks in marketing and, and finance or external stakeholders who are just demanding that we, uh, that, that, that we meet the numbers. So what I've been working on most these days is the idea of customer-based corporate valuation. I want to find a way to take these forward-looking metrics and models and make them just as appealing to the folks in finance as they are to the folks in marketing. And it's been working amazingly well. As a way to take all of our, our talk and focus about the long run 
and quantify it and to be able to come up with numbers that are just as as reliable and comparable and accountable as the, the kinds of things that we usually put on our balance sheet and income statement and cash flow statement. So spending a great deal of time with my co-founder, Dan McCarthy, working with a number of different companies on CBCV to say, again, if we can evaluate our business based on the quality of customers that they're requiring and not just how much stuff we're pushing, pushing out the door, that it's actually going to be a better indication of our ongoing health and better advice about what we should be doing next. So then how do uh, how do we make this actionable? You know, what are what are some simple steps that we can start taking, you know, immediately, you know, without all the the fancy software and everything, you know, you know, you said uh, that recency is uh, is one of the things that you really want to look at. What else can we be doing to start identifying these people to start putting uh, this stuff into practice? So look, we have all the right ingredients at our fingertips. I mean, you already said before, Chip, between the reservation system and the POS system, it's sitting right there. It's pure gold. And the fact that we haven't seen uh, kind of a universal bridge built between the two, again, there's a lot of uh, either restaurants themselves that are trying to, to, to build it from scratch or, or third-party vendors. Again, I mentioned wisely, there's others like them who are trying to bring all that together. Uh, that, that's just because of the kind of, I don't mean to be disparaging, but the short-sighted nature of folks in the industry. Everything is right there. And if we can view that bridge building exercise as an investment instead of just a cost, if we can say, man, the insights that we're going to get from it are going to transform the business, um, just inject as much more wisdom into what we do and confidence into our investors and other stakeholders, we would do it. Uh, so so it, it's all right there in order to be able to play the, let's call it the RFM game, to tag and track each customer and to take some of the kinds of systems like the ABC123 and just do it a little bit more broadly. To, to, in other words, do it across all customers, not just as a way to kind of identify or justify who the VIPs are, um, to do it more regularly. So every time, either on a, on a regular basis, every month, every quarter, or every time we run some kind of special meal or promotion, to look at it through the lens of the quality of the customers who participated or who were acquired from it, um, and to use it to drive action instead of just nice to know, to use it to determine, like I said before, menu choices, layout, uh, messaging, store location, uh, a lot of the kinds of things that I, I hate to say it, a lot of the private equity backed restaurant chains are doing uh, are being based more on this data. And, and I, I know a lot of small operators look at them with disdain and say, we would never do that. What a sellout that is. I'm not saying that you should let the numbers get in the way of, of good judgment and creativity and originality, but it, it, it's also wrong to ignore them completely. Right. You know, what's so interesting is that a lot of restaurants, uh, and I always, uh, I've said this in the past, um, and I often say this to uh, to clients, but they've got this field of dreams thing, right? If we build it, they will come, which is really a product-centric uh, approach to uh, to hospitality, meaning, you know, you get a chef saying, oh, I, I really wanted to, you know, I want to make my own restaurant. I, I want... I want to put my food forward. That there is this, there's this thinking, right? That you know, uh, if I just do my thing and I know it's good, pe- people will come. If I build it, they will come. Um, which the 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 piece that often gets left out of that equation is the customer, right? That you didn't stop to think of like, are there is there an audience for uh, for what you want to do? Are there people who really who really want this who will come back time and time again for? for this experience. Um, That's right, exactly. So it's not, and you, you summed it up really nicely, Chip. It's not just if we build it, they will come. It's who will come and for how long yeah. and what will they do? Look, I'll admit that at the beginning for a restaurant or any business, you need to be product-centric. You, you, it really is built around a concept, some, some kind of creative, different notion. That's so true. That's what's going to get you off the ground. But, but uh, as you're starting to operate, you know, as you open up that second... The, that, that second restaurant and you start to lose a little bit of that intimacy and you start to, to to no longer quite know whether that person walking in uh, you know, is, is a VIP customer or not. At some point, you really need to turn to the data analytics and technology in order to scale it up. And you'll find, number one, that very often it will confirm your intuition about who the best customers are or what the right uh, 
dishes we should be offering. It will quantify that intuition so you know what is the ROI of the different efforts that you're putting into them. Um, and it will reveal all kinds of other insights, again, about customers and about tactics that you just would have never gotten just from your intuition alone. At some point, you have to bite the bullet and do it, even if it's not the thing you do the day you open the restaurant. Yeah. So let's um, let's talk for a second about the paradox of customer centricity. It's something you talk about in the book, and um, and I think it's important that we uh, that we don't ignore this. So important, yes, indeed. I, I hope that if, if people buy the book, they'll turn right to page thirty-two uh, because that's what we talk about. <laughs> you know, this is something I was kind of losing sleep over, uh, literally, as I was kind of pulling the ideas together for the book. Because on one hand, you, you, look, you've heard me. We've heard you go on and on and on about those 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 customers you know, on the right of the histogram, those really valuable ones. And you get the mistaken impression that if we could just build our business on them alone, we're in good shape. But it's not that easy because it turns out that those really great customers are in the vast minority. Uh, and we can't count on them alone. That most of our customers are those eh, so-so ones who only come in once, maybe twice a year. But there's so darn many of them. And so this is where the paradox of customer centricity arises. The more that we zoom in, the more that we hyper-focus on those really good customers and lose sight of those many, many so-so ones, the more risks that we take and the more vulnerable, vulnerable we are to catastrophe. So we actually need those so-so customers, not so much because we're going to turn those ugly ducklings into beautiful swans, but just to keep the lights on just to keep, you know, be able to pay the staff and, and fill enough tables and justify purchasing all those ingredients. So we need those so-so customers. We're not going to treat them like royalty, but we just know that any given day that, you know, 10 to 20% of them are going to be the regulars, the really valuable ones. So we love to chat up and give them the nice table and the free appetizer. Um, but most of the customers are going to be those so-so ones who won't show up for another year. Um, so we have to learn that balancing act that we, we still have to be appealing to those so-so customers, but without over-investing in them, without focusing on them too much and trying to do too much to kind of make them happy. We don't want to chase them away. We don't want them to be upset. But at the same time, we want to be a little bit more responsive to and a little bit more anticipating the future wants and needs of certain kinds of customers than others. And it's hard to have that discipline to do it. The data... The models enable us to, to kind of know um, the, the value of those different kinds of efforts. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that, uh, I don't know, about a year ago, I was I had challenged the listeners to uh, to take one Saturday night. I said, I challenge you to touch every single table in the restaurant, to have a conversation with every single guest who comes in and out of your restaurant. And, um, and in it, it was like, you know, I want you to write down one key thing uh, that you took away from that conversation. Oh, they just moved here to the neighborhood or their daughter just is going to college or whatever it is. Um, it just as a challenge to, you know, to again, extend that hospitality and, and make it actionable. We always talk about how we, we want to be hospitable. We are literally in the hospitality industry, but sometimes I think we lose sight of it again because, you know, we're doing so many other things. But, um, but by you know trying to get to know your people, uh, the, the guests in your dining room, to to ascertain who are that that small group that you should be focusing on, that that right group, um, you're extending a certain amount of hospitality um, just in the process of trying to 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 discover who they are, um, and that alone might be enough to just make an impression on those people who you know most of the people in the dining room who are tucked away at the left side of the graph. It's so true, Chip. So let me say two two things about it. It's, it's such a great point. So again, number one, running the models, that's the easy part. It's easy to come up with the histogram that we keep talking about. Um, but then understanding what makes those customers on the right different than the customers on the left, that's the hard part. And it really takes those, those, those intimate conversations. It's not just you know, where they are in the social graph. It's not just their demographics. It's going to be more, you know, personal kind of stuff that you're not going to, it's not going to be revealed just by looking at them. So number one, you need to have those conversations to understand the factors that, that distinguish those best customers. But number two, in talking to everybody, okay, now again, maybe disproportionately, a little bit more time with those, those, uh, those better customers, but you might find some relatively cost-effective things to do without hyper-focusing on those so-so customers. 
some small things that you might have had in mind already, but just hadn't made a priority that are just going to help those 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 so-so customers be, you know, slightly more regular. If you can only get them in, you know, one more time a year, they're still not VIP, but it's just going to make your business just that, that much more sustainable. So, so, so those insights at, at kind of both ends of the spectrum can be really, really valuable. And the last thing about that is I don't want to have those chit chats in a vacuum. What I want to do, and, I, and, and there are a few restaurants who do this, but not enough. I want them to do what a lot of hair salons do, you know, that right after somebody leaves, write those notes down and, and, and associate it with the information in the reservation of the POS system. So we can start to understand not just that, oh, a lot of our, our, our clients have kids going off to college, but a disproportionate number of our valuable ones have those kids going off to college. Yeah. So to really close the loop on the qualitative and the quantitative, you know, to keep those, those, those files and not just in the back of your mind. You know, 30, 40 years ago, the uh, the best paid, the, the highest paid employees in any restaurant was always, uh, they were always the maitre d', the one who runs the front door. And, uh, and that's because there was no computer system. There was no software to keep track of all these people, right? So there was one person at the front who knew who everybody was, um, you know, who their family was, where they like to sit, what they like to eat, what they like to drink, um, you know, how often they come, all of that. All of that knowledge was stored in their heads or on a series of, uh, of note cards and a Rolodex, you know, whatever it was. Uh, and those people, those, uh, those maitre d's were very, very well paid because it was a computer system um, that, that couldn't be replaced. Now, of course, we have a computer system, right? If you've got Open Table or Talk or Resi, it's so easy to make notes um, to make notes on guests after they leave. In fact, there are a bunch of restaurants uh, that I've worked with, and um, at one of them, in fact, here in Brooklyn, and they require their servers uh, to write down a little note card. Say, I, I want to know five things about that table by the end of their visit. And if you can't, if you can't provide that, then you didn't give the kind of service that we expect. Uh, number one, and um, and it it doesn't help us get better at serving them in the future. You know, we want to know the daughter's name. We want to know, you know, where the son's going to school. We want to know their dog's name. We want to know where they live, you know, and on and on and on. And again, we've got two hours with these people. Our transaction lasts two hours. That's so right. And, but again, it's, it's, it, 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 you're right. It's a lost art of, of really knowing your, your customers. But I, I, but I really do want to tie it back to uh, you know, what they're doing and how often and everything we've been talking about before. And very often, even back then and today, there's going to be a gap between the qualitative and quantitative. And it's pretty easy to bring them together. Again, so many other industries would, would, would die to have the opportunity to, to, to interact with their customers and bring it back into the, the, the CRM system. Uh, but, but here's a sector where it's just, it's, Handed to you on a silver platter, uh, but it tends just not to be a priority, not part of the culture, uh, and and we got to change that. And I know that that's something that that you've been doing a, a great job of, uh, and, and you know, and I'm trying my best as well. Yeah, I mean. This whole, I mean, this whole pandemic has obviously decimated restaurants, and we still don't know the full fallout. Obviously, as we're as we're kind of looking down at another um, at another shutdown or another potential mm -hmm. uh, shutdown, you know, it's scary. It's affecting people who have their you know their lives tied up in these restaurants. But there is an opportunity, right? The things that we're learning through this um, are uh, you know can't be replaced. The the, the lessons. Um, that, that we're getting uh, are just too valuable unless we don't put them into practice. So all the things we learned about, you know, uh, from a restaurant's perspective about, you know, the importance of diversifying revenue streams or, you know, maintaining, you know, good communications with our guests. I mean, how many, you know, restaurants that didn't have an email list before this just you know, just got crushed during this because mm -hmm. the, otherwise there was no way to keep in touch with people. There was no way to tell people, hey, we're open. Hey, we're not open. Hey, we're open, but this is what we're serving um, that we really do, you know, on the backside of this. And let me go one step further. When we're reopening, instead of just saying, hey, we're reopening to know who you should be reaching out to first. Yes. And, you know, listen, to, to welcome you back, we're going to have, you know, the, the first two nights, it's going to be, you know, just for our, our special customers only. And there's going to be a lot of opportunities like that 
to take this horrible, horrible situation and turn it to something that, that can be really special for those right customers and to show them that you understand them, to show them that you, you know, treat them differently. Uh, and something like that can go a long way, even, maybe even more than, you know, the, the, the free appetizer. Uh, and I don't know if I've seen a single case like that. Yeah. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had uh, Amin Yazdani on the show, and he is the CEO and founder of the Craver app. Uh, and so he's creating apps for restaurants. Uh, so people have their own uh, branded app, you know, high functioning, uh, you know, not a cookie cutter kind of thing. You can really tailor it to, um, to you know, to be an extension of the restaurant's experience. And one of the things uh, that he and I talked about was, you know, how important it was. I mean, we all know that these third-party delivery sites, uh, while convenient, uh, certainly for the customer, um, are taking a huge, huge uh, commission off every single order, 20, 30% sometimes, which is just, I mean, that's the profit, right? It's, it's just absolutely eating away at it. And, um, but more than that, right? And so everybody knows that. Everybody knows that they're taking all these profits, um, but there's no other, there's no other solution. Uh, but one of the things that Amin was saying, he said, you know, it's really important for restaurants um, to start owning their data again. If you own your data, you own your customers, right? The, if you can keep your customers in, you know, inside your home, you get to learn that much more about them. But now when people go to DoorDash or Caviar or to Grubhub, you know, they know more about your customers than you do. And, and you know, what a danger that was. Uh, what a danger that's going to be for the in the long run. It's it's so bad, uh, and and there are so many stories about this. So let, let's let's go to Amazon. They, you know, in the early days of Amazon, when they just managed the e-commerce, the tiny little e-commerce uh, business for a company like <laughs> Borders, uh, and I remember saying exactly what you just said, Chip. Uh, uh, well, I guess those weren't uh, technically your words, but. Um, but yeah, I said that this is the death knell for borders because they're kind of giving away the keys to a direct competitor. Uh, now, who knows? I'm not saying that the DoorDashes of the world are going to, you know, backwards you know, move into the restaurant space themselves. But number one, you can't rule it out. Uh, and number two, even if they don't, they're going to start to have power over you and start to dictate terms and start to. You know, force you to do things that you don't necessarily want to do and aren't in the best interests of, of your customers. It's it's so important. It goes back to what I was saying before. You can't view the development of the app, the development of the databases as a cost. It's an investment. It's a vital investment in your future. Uh, and once again, when you start seeing the world through the lens of customer lifetime value, you start seeing the value of all of that data. And it's important to do it sooner rather than later. Even if you're not going to be running lifetime value models tomorrow, you want to be in a position where you'll be able to when the time is right. You can't wait and just flip a switch when the time comes. Yeah. And to play devil's advocate, I mean, DoorDash is doing what you're talking about. They are learning about their customers. And so and this is where the danger is. This is where... Uh, it, it will or may hurt restaurants in the long run because suddenly they run, you know, customer, customer lifetime value models and they have identified their heavy users, their most valuable people. And they're also going to know where those people like to dine. And so they're going to be promoting their services to that group. And there are a whole host of restaurants that may be left out in the cold because maybe that group of, you know, a thousand customers, let's say, you know, in this area where I'm at in Brooklyn, maybe they all like to go to the this sushi place and this Indian place, but they don't like to get pizza. They don't they don't order pizza in this area. Well, then all the pizza places in this area uh, are going to get screwed because all the marketing materials, all the communications, um, are, are going to be targeted toward that group and pushing them to dine at the places that they like to dine at. And so there are places that are going to get left out of that. No question. And and I will say without naming names that a, a good number of those uh, you know, restaurant intermediaries that, that we're talking about are using my models. Uh, you know, they're, they're reaching out and, and they're, uh, you know, some, on some occasions, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll even help them move ahead. But uh, I, 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 I have nothing against them. It's just that the restaurants themselves should be running the conversation here and, you know, shoring up their own business and, and creating a position where they're just going to be more 
independent in the future and in control of their destiny. And so I want everyone to be smarter, but right now it seems like only one part of the ecosystem uh, are, are making these investments and the other still hesitating. That's exactly right. And I, I think that's worth pointing out that I certainly have no animosity towards these companies either. They are fulfilling uh, a valuable service uh, throughout the course of this eight month uh, shutdown. I've certainly used them uh, time and time again. It, it's just the reality, you know, the reality of convenience and all of that. But, you know, uh, the one who has leverage can use that leverage. And now that's why we're seeing, right? The, the reason they're able to charge 20, 25, 30% commissions uh, to restaurants is because they have the leverage. And I think restaurants can put themselves in a better position to uh, to come at that conversation, to, to renegotiate contracts and all of that. If you don't need them as much, uh, it puts you in a, a more powerful position. And the, the doubly ironic part, and one we've now mentioned multiple times, that it's the, it, it's the restaurants you know, it, it, it's their data. You know, they they, it, they should be harvesting it themselves. It's right there at their fingertips. But but more important than that, the, the double ironic part is that those intermediary services, they can't really do that much outside of, you know, delivering the food. Great. That's, again, val- valuable. But it is the restaurants themselves that are in the position to personalize and customize and, and really offer a differentiated experience, much more so than the delivery companies. Uh, and, and they know that, yet they're not capitalizing on it by understanding which kind of activity, what kind of food should be promoted to what kind of customer at what time and at what context. So they're in the position to do more with this than anybody, yet they just haven't made it a priority. That's that's exactly right. And I hope that people just take that lesson uh, as we go through the rest of this, um, as the rest of this pandemic, however long it's going to be, and we are going to come out the other side, and you can either be stronger or weaker. Uh, I, I've said this over and over again. You know, the, the restaurant industry. Uh, you know, the pandemic didn't break the restaurant industry. It's it's been broken for a long time. Um, all this did was shine a light on it because when you got a business that operates with two, three, four percent profit margins over the course of the year, there's no way it can sustain a hit like this. And so all the pandemic did was shine a light on it and say, you know, here are the chips and the cracks in the uh, in the facade. And and we really have a responsibility moving forward to uh, to learn from that and to do something with it, uh, which is why I think uh, this uh, this conversation comes at a really great time. Yeah, the way I look at it, Chip, is that uh, uh, so many companies turn to these models, these perspectives for one of two reasons. It's desperation or opportunity. You've just pointed out the desperation. But I like to point out the opportunity, that it's not just a way to stay afloat. It's a way to make more money in a sustainable, defendable, ethical way. It's a way just to run your business more effectively. It's a way to better align your passions with your most passionate customers. And as a very specific example, I I don't know if we covered it before, but uh, you know, I, I built a company called Zodiac that was that was putting these models out there. We sold that company to Nike. Again, Nike didn't buy it out of desperation. Here's a company that's doing well and just wanted to do better. And what they've been doing with these models and insights and practices has been just amazing. Restaurants are in a better position than Nike to take advantage of, of this kind of data and practices. So look at, at how well Nike has done since buying my beloved Zodiac. <laughs> There's no reason why restaurants can't achieve the same kind of outcome and more. And I'm just hoping that we're going to start to see cases like that in the months and years to come. Yeah, I, I think this, uh, you know, there's always opportunity in any crisis. Uh, I, I hope that that's obvious to people uh, as much uh, as difficult it is, as it is to see sometimes. Uh, there, there is opportunity. Um, Peter, I'm so uh, grateful for your time. I know you're a busy guy. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, I, I did want to ask you before we go about uh, Starbucks, because you talk about Starbucks in your book. Uh, and I will say that uh, the book, again, has been re-released uh, this year. It was written more than a decade ago. Uh, but what Peter did um, uh, is that he, he kept it as like a time capsule. Uh, you say that in the preface of this new version. Um, and, and you talk about how you 
you use Starbucks uh, as an example um, in in the original uh, publishing of the book, and then you came back uh, in the preface in this new um, in this new printing uh, and said actually they've they've taken a lot of steps uh, since then. And I wonder if you can uh, talk a little bit about that company because it's a company that, that I think everybody knows, obviously. Sure. So it's, it's a story I love, and it's nice to be able to name names not only of the company but some of the the people there, which I'll do. Uh, you know, Starbucks was always uh, through the you know the '90s beloved as a customer-centric company, and I disagreed with that. I said, no, they're actually very product-centric. Howard Schultz, he's always thinking about what should the next roast be? Should we have a breakfast sandwich or not? It was, for them, it was all about the price. Even should we offer Wi-Fi in the stores or not? To me, that's part of the product. They didn't really have a good understanding of how the customers are different from each other. When I wrote that first book, as you said, about a dozen years ago. I kind of, it's not so much I was criticizing Starbucks, but I was criticizing just how beloved they are for being customer centric when they're, when they weren't. One of their executives was assigned to set me straight. Her name was Amy Johnson and she ran their loyalty program and all of their analytics. And she called me up and said, you know, what, what, what's up with all this? And we had <laughs> some really nice conversations and she realized that what I was talking about is what she was actually thinking about but they just hadn't quite articulated it the right way internally or externally and hadn't quite made the commitments to the data, the infrastructure, all the practices that we've been talking about here. And Amy, I don't want to say flipped around, but, but, but she saw what I was saying and realized that this actually helped to justify, helped to crystallize, helped to quantify what it is that Starbucks was trying to do. And they found some great success as they really developed and refined their mobile app and their loyalty program and a lot of things that all restaurants should be doing. And the epilogue to that story is that uh, Amy has since moved on uh, and she is now the chief marketing officer at Zillow. Uh, many of your listeners would recognize you know, the company that, that tells you what your house is worth. Yeah. And she's trying to bring a lot of that same customer centric magic over there to try to help Zillow customers to surround them with a variety of other products and services, not just which house should we buy, but helping them you know, get insurance and, and, and brokers and just all the other activities that go along with house buying. That's customer centricity. So I do love that Starbucks story in so many ways because it's long lasting. It's not just a simple little anecdote. Uh, there, there's real people involved. There are just a lot of interesting struggles and cultural changes that took place there. So again, we know that this stuff takes time. We know that it takes courage. We know that it takes investments, but it can happen uh, and it should happen more regularly. And I really do hope that through conversations like this, um, other restaurants are gonna wake up and smell the CLV and start to act on it uh, much more forcefully. Yeah, customer lifetime value. Uh, Peter, I think that's as good a place as any uh, to, to end this. Um, before I let you go, tell, uh, tell everybody where they can learn more about you, how they can stay in touch. Uh, let's say they listen to this and they say, oh my God, yes, yes, this is everything I need. Uh, what are their next steps? Help them get there. Well, two main things would be follow me on Twitter where I'm putting out all kinds of, um, of rants and perspectives and, and, and metaphors for this work. So at Fader P. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, and, and by the way, I'm just really happy to, to uh, take the conversation, start, start there, but I'm happy to send resources about some of these models. Check out my, my new startup, ThetaEquity.com, where we're trying to make these models and practices appealing to finance-oriented folks. Lots of case studies there of a number of companies looking at them through the lens of their customers instead of their products. So there are some good starting points, but I really do look forward to it. I'm hoping that 2021, as we recover from the, this horrible pandemic, and we basically rebuild our businesses, that we do so better, stronger, faster uh, by using a lot of these methods and practices. And I'm just delighted to talk to folks who are taking steps in that direction to embolden them to keep doing so and to answer any questions that they have. Excellent. Peter, I adore your work. I love this book. Uh, we're going to include all of those links in the show notes, including the link uh, to purchase uh, this book if anybody wants to read it. It is short. I mean, I'm looking at it here. It is 99 pages uh, front to back. You'll read it in a weekend. Um, Peter, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, not only for giving me a, a podium to rant about this stuff, but for all the things you're doing to help just improve the overall business literacy of restaurants. I think it, I think you're, you're doing a great service and I'm glad to play a small part in it. 
thank you for saying it. It's uh, it's always my pleasure. Thank you. Bye now. Our customers are free agents. Their loyalty only extends so far, and so you have to figure out who your best customers are, what makes them so good, so that you can figure out other people who are just like them. Customer centricity really is an extension of what we already do in the hospitality industry. It's about taking care of people. Uh, I hope you got a lot out of this conversation with Peter. Um, I think he is such a smart guy. Uh, I'm I'm really grateful to him for sharing his ideas here on the show. Uh, If you got any questions for me or if you want to uh, connect with Peter, again, uh, all the information is in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in. Stay safe, stay creative, and I will see you next time.